I have a title for my talk today. My title, the title of the talk is Keep a Cool Head, a Warm Heart, and a Little Burning in the Gut. And walk bravely through this burning world. You know, um, <laughs> now I'm not paying attention to my talk immediately. Um, <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. My good friend and um, your Dharma sister, Pam, her, uh, the website of her business is called An Appropriate Response. And there isn't a written down appropriate response. We have to, by being free inside, by being able to be as clear as possible on our side, and then to be able to see as clearly as possible the burning world, we have a chance to respond in an appropriate way. There's no, uh, there are no scripts Um, <clears throat> Hello, everybody. It's really nice for me to be here. I'm happy to be back. And it's great to see uh, old faces that I haven't seen in a while, and new people who I probably have been around, and I just don't know you. So everybody, welcome. Last week, I was um, looking for somebody. Oh, there you are. I heard you were here. Great. Nice to see you. Um, last week, I, I did a similar ceremony as I'm going to do with Laura on Sunday, and with everybody, actually. We, the ceremony isn't a ceremony unless all you guys are here. So thank you again for coming. It's a lovely, lovely ceremony. It was done in Washington State with a woman, Daya, who um, Laura has been studying with this past year. Daya is a, um, she was a very old, a very good friend of a very good and old friend of both of ours named Darlene, who was Laura's, I believe, root teacher, would you say? And Darlene wanted this to happen, and I was really happy to do it for her and for Daya. So I went up to Washington State. I'd never been there before. And um, it was done where they live, which is at the end of a dirt road in the middle of a forest that her husband takes care of for the, a Native American tribe up there that owns that forest. And I was talking to Greg the other day, and the silence was so profound and so deep, and the stillness so palpable that it was, for me, uh, you know, I just, I just wanted to go outside and be quiet, <laughs> just be with the trees. And every so often, there was a very slight breeze, and there was a particular swishing sound of pine. It, they were ponderosa pines, this swishing sound up at the top 
of their crown. And I felt open and open-hearted and deeply connected. I could have stayed there a lot longer. But when it was time to go home uh, by plane, and home for me is uh, San Francisco, I flew over plumes of smoke, hundreds of miles long, and you could see fire. You could see the fire below. Yeah, it was just devastating, literally, and also, you know, emotionally. Um, The destruction and the loss of life and California, the nature of California is used to it. It has lived with fire for eons, but the kind of fire that we're having now is quite different. Um, they, They make fire tornadoes, fire, they're called something. And um, so it was really startling to me, the juxtaposition of this um, stillness and quiet and this horrific sort of fire, the power of the fire and destructive nature of what was going on was startling to me. So I thought about it a lot. I really thought about it a lot. And it occurred to me that this actually is our situation. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It is our situation. We have both as human beings, we have in our depth this silence, this true nature, this stillness that is our inheritance as human beings. And at the very same time, we have uh, greed and hate and the kind of uh, sense of separation that is produced by also our very natural egoic mind that's developed in uh, as, as kids. That is also an inheritance, a lineage of tragedy. I guess I don't mean to be so depressing. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought to myself, there's got to be an answer, right? Right away, as a human being, right away I'm looking, you know, what's the answer? What can we do about this situation? So I looked up the word freedom. I looked up, have you ever looked up the entomology of the word freedom? (laughs) It is so cool. Guess. Why don't you get guess? What tell me what you think the etymology is of the word freedom? Et- entomology, right? Etymology. Entomology is bugs. <laughs> What's the? What do you think the etymology of the word freedom is? Guess. N- nobody. Do we have any English majors? It could have, but I meant just free, free, to be free. Okay, all right, I'll tell you. <laughs> I would not have guessed in a million years. I'm going to read it to you. Free. The primary Germanic sense, Germanic sense, 
seems to have been beloved, friend, to love. In Germanic and Celtic, it developed also a sense of free, perhaps from the terms beloved or friend. For the older sense in Germanic compares also to the Gothic. It's, the word is frisian, to love. In Old English, friod means affection and friendship and peace. Friga, love. Fridu, peace. In Old Norse, frior. I'm probably not pronouncing any of these correctly, but you get the idea. Means peace personal security, love, and friendship. So, isn't that amazing? The etymology of free is all about love. (laughs) And so I was thinking more about it, and I thought this is perfect for us, because in um, in our, our practice, in our way of going forward, we have everything to do with freedom, and freedom is very much has everything to do with love. So I wanted to um, share something with you that Mel, Mel is, was my teacher. He's the fellow who transmitted me. And um, one time when I was in Dokazan with him, he gave me this as a koan. This is the koan. The koan is, can, let's see, why is this relevant? I'll tell you later. Um, the koan is, can you show me love without an object? This is a really good koan. Can you show me love without an object? And so I'm going to read to you a real koan, traditional koan, that has also to do with objects. And of course, I'm talking about objects because at the bottom of the, of the reason why we have this kind of tragedy in our human lineage is because we see things as objects. We th- see things as separate from us. I haven't given a Dharma talk in years. My mouth is like, blah, blah. <laughs> it's funny. So this is a great, this is a great koan. I love this koan. It's Joshu in Japanese, or Jiaozhou in Chinese. A monk asks Joshu, what is the meaning of the ancestor coming from the West? And of course, this is you know, shorthand for what's the meaning, period, or why do we practice? And Jiaozhu says, the cypress tree in the garden. He always gave these kinds of answers. And the monk says, teacher, Please don't use an object for your response. <laughs> and Joju says, Joshu, Jiao Jo, Joshu. They're different. He says, the cypress tree in the garden. And then the monk says, I continues, but it's irrelevant. The point being that the monk interpreted what Zhaozhou said as an object. But for Zhaozhou, it's not an object. That's why he said it again, the cypress tree in the garden. 
So how do we begin to address seeing things from the point of view of uh, duality, we can say? How do we address that? Any suggestions? Really? Okay. How do, how, do, how do we address, what is a practice around, what is a practice around seeing things as objects to address that misperception? The other day on the um, internet, I saw this cute little YouTube video. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, when I showed it to Erica, she said that she had seen it, so maybe you guys have seen it. There's this little girl. She must be like three or maybe four, and she has these blonde, curly hairs all over the place. She's so cute. <laughs> she, you don't really see. You don't see her face. You only see the back of her. And what she does is she climbs up on a tub, and she climbs onto a sink in her bathroom, in the bathroom of the house. And she's standing there, and she begins, and she faces a mirror, and she begins going like this. I love my house, and I love my dad, and I love my mother. I love my sister, and I love my hair, and I love my haircut, and I love my room, and I love my <laughs> She does it like for about three minutes. It's so joyous and so wonderful. And I loved it to bits, so I decided to, <laughs> you're gonna, I decided to take this on as a practice. Now, <laughs> I don't go around saying, you know, I love the street, and I, well, actually, I don't go like this, right, like she did, but I do. I've been doing it now for about two weeks. And it is really interesting. It completely opens your heart. And you don't see it, it. It leaps across the separation. In the past, I've always done, uh, usually, a Tonglen is a very favorite um, compassion practice for me. And also, there's metta. And both of these practices, besides being com- uh, concentration practices, they're practices that address separation. So, But you have to do phrases that, for me, was, um, in metta anyway, it was always uh, Problem. <laughs> problem with metta. Um, and with Tonglin, y- y- there's a long process to go through before the Tonglin practice becomes your own, so that, that you can do it on the breath. On the in-breath, you bring in pain and suffering with various kinds of ways. And on the out-breath, you send out peace and you know whatever loveliness you can gather. So takes a very long time to get there so that it flows evenly on your breath. But some of these really wonderful you know, Tibetan masters, that's what they do. They walk down the street, and on each breath, they're sending out peace and bringing in suffering and sending out peace. It's incredible practice. So I just decided I, I would just go, <laughs> I love that car, and I love that window, and I love the flag, and I love that building, and I love that person. I love that person. And it's really great. <laughs> it's a really great practice. It's very effective. And so what it does is it, it breaks through this sense of separation that we walk through life with that create the kind of um, suffering that for ourselves and for other people. 
And it's kind of a war inside. We have a war. We think of ourselves as an object, don't we? My uh, thoughts, you know, my emotions, my body. Right? So who's the my that has the body and the thoughts and the emotions? Right? We treat ourselves as an object. We're separate from our own inner workings which is why we can struggle, you know, because like one of me wants to go to, you know, get married, and this other one of me doesn't really like the person I'm related to, and what should I do, and what, you know, what's the right thing, and then the wrong thing, and it goes on and on, and we have this war inside because we think of ourselves as an object, good and bad, right and wrong, and we, think of it as, and we think of it as my life. We think of it as my life, which is eventually seen to be a mistake. It's not my life, it is life. In fact, living itself as me for a moment, you know, for like a blink of an eye. I was going to wait, and then uh, during November, in the November retreat that we're going to have, I was going to kind of go through the path that we're on, this practice path that is our life. But a little kind of a teeny one way to summarize kind of the path that we're on is we can say, Initially, in the beginning, when we, when we feel ourselves with this kind of separation, and when we identify with emotion thought, it is what we are. This is an ident- one identity of a number of identities that I understand you guys are working with at BCC, around race in particular, right? So that's one identity of many identities that we have. And then the first kind of level of freedom happens when you no longer identify with emotion, thought, and the body, and you become the witness of whatever that is. That's a huge step. When people first get this taste of being able to see their emotion, thought, and not being caught by it, it's a huge, it's, it only takes a crack, just a little bit of space, and it's a real taste of freedom. And then sometimes if we're lucky, and if we keep um, making this kind of shift to awareness as we more and more know that we're this object, this observer, this observer, and we keep making that shift, that becomes, it can become more and more, you can say maybe, I don't know if dominant is a very good word, but more and more palpable, this awareness that simply is knowing emotion thought. This emotion thought is actually happening within this vast awareness. 
if there's real inquiry there, curiosity there about what is happening and what is this awareness, and it can wake up to itself. And we call that kensho or stream entry. And when it wakes up to itself, what happens, it's, it's kind of strange, you still, there's like a residue of the, the identification there. Not in the experience itself, but in the residue. And then that has to drop away. Then there's only observing happening without the identification of me being the awareness or anything. then there is only this vastness looking out of your eyes. That doesn't need anything. That doesn't, it's not not characterized by anything. It has no location. It's not asking for anything. It's very quiet. It is this quiet stillness that we are. And then the more you we allow that to be, I hate to keep saying dominant, that's such an odd word to use. What? Prevalent. I don't know, I can't. It's already here anyway, so it's not like uncovered maybe? I don't know. Anyway. Parent, yes. Then you begin to realize there's a, can be, you realize that everyone also is that same awareness. And then you lose the sense of objectifying people or things or whatever it is that you're relating with. It becomes very intimate. There's an intimacy there that we are all yearning for. And in fact, Every one of us has had that experience. If you hadn't, I don't think you would be here. We've all tasted this kind of freedom. I wrote to Daya and this other fellow, Ed Brown, both of whom knew Suzuki Roshi really well, and I asked them, I asked them, What was it like for you guys being with him? And this is what Ed said. No, this is what I'm going to read you, Daya, first. This is what Daya said. This is is kind of what it's like being with someone for whom that non-separation, for whom the embodiment of what actually we are is dominant. My first response after reading your words was how much I loved him. I trusted him. He was like a grandfather to me, a Zen teacher grandfather, very kind and playful, always a sparkle in his eye, except when he was angry at a student or action or lack of action. By the way, none of us are perfect. Though I don't remember him ever being angry with me. He was present for each person in front of him, 
and seemed to reflect whoever they were at that moment. Also, very present for and appreciative of the beings and rocks and trees and plants. I still talk to mine because of him. Sometimes for Dokusan, when I didn't seem to have a question, I'd bring him drawings of fanciful creatures, and we'd look at them and laugh together like kids. He'd say he should really be giving me salt instead of sweets, that I needed more salt. I don't know if it was because I wasn't a serious enough Zen student, or that was the best way to teach or relate to me, or I just seemed like a young girl to him, like a granddaughter. He has been a huge influence in my life. I think about him for one reason or another most days. The big rock I had placed under the willow tree in my front yard is named Shunryu. I planted bamboo in my backyard and a ginkgo tree because he likes those, and I helped him plant them and care for them at Tassajara. When I sit zazen, I usually start by placing him in front of me, and I breathe with him, as he did, as he had me do once during Dokusan. I'm not sure how to explain his influence in my everyday life. He's just with me, inside of me. I look at situations or my reactions or at a rock or a passing bird as if he's watching with me. My husband, who is not a Zen student, and never met Suzuki Roshi, is very aware of how much he has meant to me. Ted, my husband, will often bring up Suzuki Roshi. What would Suzuki Roshi think of this or that? The more words I write you, the more I feel that love. I am so very grateful that life somehow, when I was a young adult, put me in his path or him in my path. He was so very open to each person, object, situation, seen newly without categorizing beforehand. He relied on and taught from his tradition, from his years in a temple, but he was not stuck in it. So that's the kind of love side that you can feel from a person who has no sense of self in the way of relating to reality. There's not a, a, you know, something in front of his eyes. He's just seeing what's there from a place of great compassion because it's what we are underneath all of it. This compassion arises when this, as the self dissolves more and more, quite naturally, compassion arises. We can, we can say how, in particular, with this or that practice, or because you feel your own suffering and don't want others to suffer, or that being you know, non-judgmental and open, heartfelt to your own suffering, you don't want any other people to suffer in that way. But actually, the truth of it is that it's there. It is what we are when this sense of separation is not so dominant. 
This is a different side. This is more the wisdom side, written by Ed Brown. Did you, did you, could you feel that part of Daya when that's there, it's, you know? <laughs> this is what Ed Brown said, very different person, kind of person than Daya. Suzuki Roshi practiced his way, and you could choose to join him or not. It wasn't as though he was handing out reprimands or accolades, depending on your performance. He sat, bowed, walked, chanted, lectured, cleaned, talked, listened, giving himself, giving himself, giving himself fully to each activity without showing off, without shrinking, without saying that his way was the right way or even the Zen way. He was not higher or lower, better or worse, more or less spiritual than anyone else. And time after time, in the zendo, in his cabin, on the path, he recognized your core, your essence, your true nature, which is pristine, precious, radiant, spacious, vast. His seeing you meant that sometimes you could see yourself and you would know that fundamentally you were sincere, holy, good-hearted, and lovable. It wasn't that he ignored the rest. It just never became the basis for liking or disliking, accepting or rejecting. You wouldn't need to fix everything after all. Sure, you could work on it and learn a lot, but you were perfect just the way you were. And more important than covering or removing blemishes, you could study how to express your true nature more fully and intimately. These people, these really great teachers, are like that. They each all have different personalities. They are very much themselves. But you feel when you're with them that the deepest part of you is met, sometimes even if you don't know what's happening. What is already there for us all, this emptiness, this love, resonates when you meet it at the deepest level. And so being with somebody like that, like they say, you know, encourage that of which we are to come forward. So how do we live in this world of confusion and natural tragedies and unnecessary suffering. For me, this was my answer. For me, my answer was to, (laughs) 
was to dive as deeply as I could into this practice. Because it seemed to me that only coming from a place of wisdom, of compassion, of non-separation, do we have a chance to walk in this world in a non-divided heart. What other way is there to respond? It doesn't mean that we're passive. It doesn't mean that we're not active. It doesn't mean that we don't, you know, try very much to write what we think of as wrong. Not just think of as wrong, as horrifically wrong. No. But it means we do it from a place of wholeness, not from a place of separation. Please. This means that we all have to do our work. That's why we're here. It's not easy. It's not easy. It takes courage, humor, determination, vowing, and a, and a, and a, and a, and a, and a, what can I say, a, uh, just the strictest kind of honesty with yourself. And it takes doing it with other people. It's so much more difficult alone. And it's possible. You know, freedom is possible. Freedom on every level possible. Freedom from all the identifications, all of the conditioning, all of the hatred, all of the grasping. In some ways, the farther you go on the path, the subtler and more sort of (laughs) deep you have to look. So that's what we do. We sit and we look. And we hopefully, the things that we need to see that are creating this sense of separation are seen clearly because it's in the seeing of them that they dissolve. It's in the questioning of them that they are seen. And just like it said, uh, I forget if it was Daya or Ed, Suzuki Roshi completely was there for every activity. This is a key. It's why we, it's what, it's what forms are about. You know, it's why we puff the cushions or we bow, you know, already I'm here and I'm already, adjusting people's um, form. But I love it, you know. Not gasho, gasho. Not because it's important in some kind of otherworldly place where gasho is written down in heaven somewhere. (laughs) No. 
it's because it's being offered to you to be able to have something to throw yourself totally into. It's a celebration of presence. It's a celebration of life. It's another way just to be completely this miracle that we are. So we get to sit more. We have another day. We have today, two more, and then tomorrow. And then we're going to have a ceremony. We are going to install, can we say? We're going <laughs> We're going to install a bodhisattva. I think this is the fabulous ceremony. Not a priest. That although priest is a bodhisattva, but in a in a bodhis in a priest bodhisattva it's like the priest in a way is emphasized because you do ritual and help people and support a sangha and it's endless. A lay person, we can emphasize, is a bodhisattva path. It's a path that as much as you know, even if it's just this much, you hold your hand out. So the next person can open this much. And then you open this much. And then you hold out your hand. So the next person can open this much. I told Ian I would stop at quarter two. (laughs) I have to stop. Excuse me. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.